Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast. Episode 272, Courage Yet Defeat, The Battle of Kempar. Last time, Lieutenant General Sir Lewis Heath and Major General Murray Leon seemed to be in a contest as to who could pull back the 11th Indian Infantry Division, the fastest and the furthest, along the Malayan West Coast. Either way, as the 9th Indian Infantry Division was being handled in the same rough manner on the East Coast, one week into the fighting, December 16th, the northern half of Malaya had been lost. The concern now for GOC Percival was the Japanese air arm, now close enough to bomb Singapore directly from their newly conquered territory. That element alone could be the beginning of the end, and much sooner than Air Chief Marshal Sir Robert Brooke Popham, Churchill, and the War Cabinet had counted on, or at least hoped for. The plan now well, really, the only option left open to Percival, was to hope the Indian Third Corps could do what it had not been able to do since the enemy had landed, that is, stymie any further advancement south. If this was possible, and if the reinforcing convoys arrived, as expected in January, then perhaps there was a chance this thing could be dragged out. So Percival would keep the 8th Australian Infantry Division closer to Singapore, in Johor, as would the RAF, their planes. The Indian 9th and 11th were on their own, yet Singapore's fate rested on their ability, or not, to learn from the thrashing they had just received. It had always been a part of the 3rd Air Arm and Lieutenant General Tomoyuki Yamashita's plan to set up fighters and bombers in northern Malaya as soon as possible. And as we have seen, three airfields were taken within hours of the Japanese coming ashore, at Singora and Patani in southern Thailand, and Kota Baru in northern Malaya. Soon, other airfields were added to this list as the Indian troops were pulled back, or the RAF abandoned the more northern airfields, only after half-heartedly wrecking them before they left. To be sure, the RAF had tried to strike back, and, as early as December 9th, going after a Singora airfield. But as the British had pathetic warning systems throughout the entire contest, the Japanese were able to come in over their airfield at Butterworth in northern Malaya and shoot up the planes before they could take off, which pointed out another British weakness, the complete mess that was their anti-air ground defenses. In place were supposed to be four heavy and 12 light anti-aircraft guns, but for numerous reasons, this was not the case. Though one pilot, 
Squadron leader Arthur Scarf, who lifted off first, made it through the hail of bullets and bombs at Butterworth. As he was the lone Blenheim light bomber still operational, Scarf still decided to take his crew of three on their mission to bomb Singora. Chased all the way to the now-held Japanese airstrip by enemy fighters, Scarf made his bomb run and then headed for home. But by then, his plane was barely holding it together. Scarf's left arm was in the same condition, and he had a bullet hole in his back. Knowing he was not going to make it all the way back to Butterworth, Scarf, despite moments of blacking out, landed at the closer Alora Star airfield. His two other crewmen were unhurt, though it was a rough landing, but Scarf died a few hours later at a nearby hospital. But for the Allied cause, even if every one of his bombs had taken out an enemy plane, which they did not, Scarf's effort would not have been enough to stop the Japanese from dominating the air from the outset of the battle. Starting out with 110 aircraft, the British were down to 50 by the end of the first 48 hours of the battle. Because they could, the various air squadrons pulled back from the front faster than the 11th Indian Infantry Division, and it was during these numerous pullbacks from Kota Baru to Alor Star to Butterworth to Taiping to Ipoh and eventually to Singapore, which did not allow any serious air cover for Force Z. By the time Squadron 453 had arrived over Admiral Tom Phillips' ships, they were already under the waves. And this was after the first full day of Battle of Malaya, when some 86 various Allied aircraft from seven squadrons, had went after the Japanese convoys, who were putting men ashore. But for all their effort, only one transport was sunk, and two others were turned away, temporarily. In all, not the RAF's finest moment. But the truth was, their machines, almost each and every part of them, were not equal to the Japanese. But neither was the coordination system that went into making them a hard-hitting force. If the exquisite aforethought and attention to detail that allowed the Battle of Britain to be what it was could have been brought to bear here in Malaya, the Japanese would have had a much harder time in the air, and thus on the land and sea. But it was not. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. 
For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Getting back to the ground game, as stated, Percival's new line was behind the Parak River near Kampar, about 100 miles northwest of Kuala Lumpur. Indeed, it was to prevent the Japanese from obtaining the RAF field at Kuala Lumpur, not to mention controlling the main road heading further south that this next battle was to prevent. While this line was manned by the battered 11th Indian Infantry Division, it was hoped that they could delay the enemy long enough to allow the 9th Division, operating on the east coast, to pull back further south. For as the land narrowed the further south one went, the 9th Infantry would then be in a position to protect the 11th's right flank. But, flying in the face of the Allied plans, the Japanese soldiers and their commanders were most desirous to make the town of Kampar a New Year's gift to Emperor Hirohito. To help the passing of orders up and down the chain of command, and perhaps morale, Percival reorganized the 11th Indian Infantry Division. The 6th and 15th Indian Brigades were put together because of their losses, and they now formed the 15th 6th Brigade under Brigadier Henry Moorhead of the Crocall debacle. Further added to the new formation was the 12th and 28th Indian Brigades, so technically the 11th was at full strength for the first time. Yes, this was a bit of sleight of hand, but perhaps it would make a difference to the men. And as for Major General David Murray Leon, Percival had not been happy at all as to how the last week had unfolded. Hence, that commander was out, replaced by Major General Archie Paris on December 24th. Taking a bird's-eye view of the battlefield, the city of Kampar sits in the middle and coming down from due north is the main road. Just north of Kampar and to the right of the road are three ridges along the Gunung Bajang Malaka, a 4,070-foot jungle-covered limestone mountain. From north to south, the ridges on this height were called Thompson, Green, and Cemetery. And with their height, not only did they command the road coming into Kampar, but also gave whomever held the heights a great view south, as in what to expect next if someone wanted to attack towards Kuala Lumpur. To the left or west of Kampar was swampland, hence no Japanese attack was expected from that direction. Moreover, the Parak River entered the Malayan Peninsula to the southwest of Kampar, and ran roughly to the northeast, until it neared the city. Troops were put along the river, but again, it was doubted the Japanese would try to bring their tanks this way. About four miles up the road from Kampar, the road split, with another lane coming down on the other side, or right side, of the great height. Prudence demanded this be covered as well, but Brigadier Paris put fewer troops on that road. 
Still, the closest unit to this fork in the road, and the one that the Japanese would have to defeat before coming further south, was the 2-9th Gurkha Battalion. Behind them, to their right, was the 2-2nd Gurkha. And finally, furthest right, was the badly mauled 28th Gurkha Brigade, commanded by Brigadier Ray Selby. Back to the main road, just above Kampar, the British battalion, made up of the survivors of the 1st Leicestershire Regiment and the 2nd East Surreys, was stationed. Within the town itself was the 114th Punjab. Just behind Kampar, and a bit to the west, was the 3rd 16th Punjab, should the Japanese brave the swamps and come that way. And bringing up the rear was the 216th Punjab, whose job it was to hold the line of retreat, just in case. After all, this was a delaying tactic, nothing more. Percival did not expect Paris to hold out for any duration. As Lieutenant General Takuro Matsui's 5th Division came south, in the lead was Major General Saburo Kawamura's 9th Brigade, of about 4,000 men. And as the men of the 9th Brigade, the 11th and 41st Regiments, had seen little fighting thus far, they were rested and eager to do their part for the Empire. At this moment in time, Brigadier Paris was holding a line from the west coast, a position to his southwest, to just east of Kampar. Basically, too wide a front, with not enough men. But he held the heights. He had his guns up there, and he had spotters, looking out for the approaching enemy. Further, though the Japanese could guess that both roads were covered by artillery, they didn't know exactly where the Gurkhas were, north of the town. The jungled heights hid the defending troops. By December 30th, Major General Kawamura's 9th Brigade had reached the most northern Allied positions. Resting for the rest of the day, on the 31st, the far right flank, covered by the weakened 28th Gurkha, was tested by a battalion from the 11th Regiment. It had taken some doing, but the Japanese eventually found the 28th's position. But now that they did, they formed up, ready to attack. But what the Japanese battalion failed to also notice were the howitzers of the 155th Lanarkshire Yeomanry Field Artillery. As the charge came, the guns opened up, cutting down many of the would-be attackers. Thinking this was a fluke, the 11th Regiment's men kept charging the Gurkha's line, but each time they only had more dead to show for their efforts. It was the best a desperate defense could hope for, an enemy willing to bash its collective head against a well-fortified position. That night, with dozens of dead and wounded enemy troops lying before their guns, Lieutenant Colonel Augustus Murdoch ordered a 12-gun salute to be fired to celebrate the day's victory and welcome in the new year. But to help the war effort, those dozen guns were aimed at the enemy. With the Allied right flank not giving up territory, it was determined by the Japanese to try the left flank the next morning. At 7 a.m. New Year's Day, 1942, the Japanese 41st Regiment came down the main road, along the base of the ridges, 
and ran right into the British battalion, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Esmond Morrison. The attackers were supported by intense mortar fire, which allowed them to get in close. The main defensive line in the center was lost, but then retaken. Indeed, several times that day. There was much hand-to-hand combat, with the bayonet being the main weapon. But thinking little of the Commonwealth's stomach for such fighting and for such losses, Colonel Okabe continued to send in fresh men, even as an impressive number of his men were carried past him, going the other way, wounded. But making the Allied lives a living hell as well, the British battalion was shelled and bombed as the enemy dominated the skies. There was nothing for it but to get down when the planes flew over, only to rise up again and continue fighting. Like the 28th Gurkha on the far right flank, the men of the British battalion took advantage of the thick jungle, popping up only when they were ready to offer a concentrated volley, and were joined by the equally concealed guns of the 88th Field Artillery. This process went on and on for two days, January 1st and 2nd. The Japanese would send in men, only to have enough of them killed to force them back. But each time, the Allies lost men as well. There was no let-up, and no one came to relieve the defenders just above Kampar. Everyone had to stay in place, in case the more numerous enemy also attacked in another area. But it was the most forward position of this fighting that saw the most savagery. Nothing demonstrated this more than Lieutenant Edgar Newland and his 30 Lesticeers, when they were cut off from any support. For two days, this microcosm of the larger fighting played out the same way. They were attacked from different sides and had to keep fighting until all comers were dead. Then they would get whatever rest they could, assess their wounded and remaining ammunition, check in to let the rest of the line know that they were still alive, and then do it all over again. Newland would receive the Military Cross, the third-level military decoration awarded to officers in recognition of an act or acts of exemplary gallantry during active operations against the enemy on land. As bloody as this two-day business was, the fight was going Percival's way. Yes, men were dying, but the enemy wasn't getting any closer to Singapore. But it had almost come unraveled, and from the outset. Of the three ridges to the right or east of the main road, where the fighting was taking place, the attackers were able to take control of Thompson Ridge, the most northern one. This was the beginning of unraveling the entire Allied defensive position. If the Japanese held on to Thompson, then reinforcements could be brought forward, and direct attacks made on the other two ridges. If successful, there would have been a massive hole right in the middle of Paris's line. Something had to be done, and now. When the threat of the Tegan Ridge was discovered, D Company of the British Battalion was peeled off to retake Thompson Ridge, but the two charges failed. Then a contingent of Jat Punjabas were sent in, but they too 
failed. Each minute the Japanese held the ridge, more reinforcements were probably being sent there. The entire defensive position had to be saved, here and now, or not at all. So a company of 60 Sikhs and Gurjas were put together and told to take that ridge. As this latest strike force was mixed, so too would its command be. Captain John Graham and Lieutenant Charles Lamb were sent to oversee this fourth attempt. The two officers had their men fix bayonets and then charge up the hill. But the Japanese were ready for them. Ironically, the new owners of Thompson Ridge were able to do what the Gurkhas had done to the enemy units attacking them, namely concentrate all their fire on an approaching enemy. After the first volley, 33 Allied men, along with Lieutenant Lamb, had fallen to the ground. As for Captain Graham, he was hurt as well, but was still able to issue orders. The attack continued with Graham in charge, but that came to an end when a grenade went off near the captain, which shredded his legs below the knees, and he would die of his wounds a few days later. Still, the Sikhs and Indians pushed on and were soon able to overtake the weary Japanese defenders. The immediate right flank of the battle just above Kampar had been saved. During the two days of close-quarter combat, Lieutenant General Matsui demonstrated his own bravery by telling his superior, General Yamashita, that the enemy's position just north of the town was too strong to take, not unless they wanted to at least double their losses so far. General Yamashita could not have been pleased to hear that the sons of the empire were not able to defeat the enemy, but now was not the time to dwell on such things. Instead, he ordered that the 11th Infantry Regiment would make an amphibious landing just south of the entrance of the Perak River. The 11th would then fight their way north and engage the enemy from behind. Further, a unit from the Imperial Guards Division would brave the swamps just west of Kampar and assist in this attack. The consoling element to Matsui and Yamashita was that, with this less-than-direct attack, the 11th Indian Infantry Division would be cut off from any further retreating and thus captured or destroyed. So, during the heavy fighting just north of Kampar, and the fighting for Thompson Ridge, and the holding of the line by Lieutenant Edgar Newland and his 30 Leicesters for the first two days of the new year, the Japanese 11th Regiment sailed down the west coast, and then up the Perak River, until they landed near Telok Anson, modern-day Teluk and Tan. With the element of surprise and having more troops, early on January 2nd, the defending 3rd Cavalry and the 1st Independent Company at Telok Ansan retreated to the northeast, to the 12th Brigade's position. Word of this was sent to Major General Paris, and he knew it was only a matter of time before the main road to his south was taken by the enemy. Having no choice, and despite the heroic efforts by his men to hold off the enemy to his north, he gave the word 
which seemed to have become the order of the day since the Japanese had landed. Retreat. The 12th Brigade, now reinforced, to the southwest of Kampar, was ordered to hold off the 11th Regiment from getting any closer to the main road, while the defending Allied troops pulled back, again leaving equipment behind, and raced down the road. Their next defensive position would be at a place called Slim River, about 42 miles further south, named after an English captain who accidentally sailed up the wrong river back in the 19th century. Yet it seemed that all British influence, certainly like place names on the peninsula, was about to be wiped away. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. Um, A quick production note, but of course I hope you all are able to spend time with friends and family over the holidays. Um, Two weeks ago, November 18th, I believe, I put out an episode about Force Z, uh, Admiral Phillips' uh, capital ships and his escorts. Um, But on the same day, um, Wondery put out a, a commercial or something on my uh, feed at the, on the same day. So I think that show got missed by a lot of you. So if you haven't seen it already, good news is there's another uh, episode waiting for you. It's about Force Z, and it's got Force Z in the title. I just can't remember exactly which episode it is, but make sure you check that out because it will make this episode make a lot more sense to see why the Indians were so on their own without air cover and naval support. So just look for the episode about two weeks ago. And for you members, I just put out another episode yesterday with the SS divisions, the Waffen-SS, are heading into Russia with the Wehrmacht, and they're about to come upon hard times, despite their enthusiastic approach to wiping out all the Nazis' enemies. And of course, I'll see you with more episodes about the Malayan uh, campaign um, as we go on through the month of December. As always, take care, everyone.